The Pentagon's budget is not big enough. National debt be damned. That is essentially what Republican Senator Mitch McConnell declared, saying, if anything, substantial increases in the defense budget are in order. The defense budget ought to reflect the nature of the threat. We have the ongoing challenge of meeting China in the future. And clearly, in this environment, we need to continue to plus up defense. McConnell isn't asking Congress to do anything new. The House and Senate have a substantial bipartisan history of plussing up the defense budget. Take the most recent omnibus spending package passed in December 2022. It's $1.7 trillion. The Pentagon alone gets half the pie, a record $858 billion. Every other federal agency, together, received a total of $772 billion. And by the way, that $858 billion is more than the DOD asked for. Congress plussed up the DOD's budget by 10%. The Biden administration had requested only a 4% defense increase in its budget proposal. Meanwhile, that same Congress declined to plus up non-defense spending. Put crudely, the Pentagon gets more money than it needs without even asking. Meanwhile, parents who could use that expanded child tax credit? Sorry, you're out of luck. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Back in September of 2021, we did a show trying to understand how money works in the Pentagon. And we learned some rather interesting things, such as... The Pentagon budget today is almost twice as high as, high as it was in the late 90s. And no one really knows where all the money is going because the Pentagon has never successfully completed an audit. And all we ever get are excuses from, the, quite honestly, the Department of Defense why they can't do it. Well, that's absolutely BS. I mean, you can, uh, like any other area, you can have accounting for what happens, but they don't. Now, we haven't been able to stop wondering why. The Pentagon's budget could surpass $1 trillion in the coming years. So what are the factors driving this unimpeded growth? Well, obviously, there are a lot of them, and they are complicated. So today, we're going to focus on just one. It's a secret dinner that took place deep in the Pentagon back in 1993. And it transformed... America's military-industrial complex. For over 40 years, the United States led the West in the struggle against communism and the threat it posed to our most precious values. This struggle shaped the lives of all Americans. It forced all nations to live under the specter of nuclear destruction. That confrontation is now over. President George H.W. Bush on December 26, 1991. Two years earlier, the Berlin Wall had fallen and Bush and Soviet Premier Mikhail Gorbachev met at the Malta summit, a moment heralded as the end of the Cold War. With the Soviet threat receding, U.S. lawmakers saw a rare opportunity at home, a chance to reduce America's vast military spending. As we reduce defense spending and build down our forces, we must do so with a strategy and with common sense as our guide. That's then-Secretary of Defense Dick Cheney in March of 1990, as Congress considered defense appropriations for the next year. We should not engage in the kind of radical reductions that followed World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. Each reduction left us weaker. Each reduction had to be reversed at great cost. 
we are now on a prudent path to lower defense spending, one guided by a strategy and an understanding of our enduring military requirements. Of course, the United States was soon at war again. That August, Saddam Hussein's Iraq invaded Kuwait, and President George H.W. Bush authorized the call-up of U.S. reserve forces. Remarkably, the House did not back away from trimming Pentagon spending. This is Les Aspen, Wisconsin Democrat and then chair of the House Armed Services Committee, speaking when the House passed the budget in September of 1990. The House today, uh, I think, passed the first defense bill of the new post-Cold War era. And it provides for a military that is still primarily uh, shaped to meet the Soviet threat But I think it takes the first steps towards buying the right stuff for a new kind of a defense. From 1991 to 1996, the defense budget dropped by more than 15 percent. In 1992, then-presidential candidate Bill Clinton made a campaign promise. The end of the Cold War required a transformation of the military, quote, from the bottom up. And in 1993, President Bill Clinton named Les Aspen his first Secretary of Defense. Well, Aspen's bottom-up review influenced the development of the 1994 Pentagon budget. One thing was clear. Spending reductions were going to decimate the nation's defense contractors. William Perry, then Deputy Secretary of Defense, reportedly said, quote, We expect defense companies to go out of business. We will stand by and watch it happen, end quote. Except that Aspen and Perry didn't exactly stand by. In the fall of 1993, they quietly invited CEOs of the nation's top defense contractors to dinner at the Pentagon. Norman Augustine was one of the invitees, and he joins us now. Mr. Augustine, welcome to On Point. Thank you. It's very nice to be with you. In 1993, what was your title? At that time, I was the uh, chairman and CEO of Martin Marietta Corporation, which was an aerospace firm. Aerospace and and major missile uh, designer and manufacturer as well, a very important company in the world of defense. So when did you get this call uh, from from the Pentagon that you were invited to dinner there? Well, as you said, it was in the fall of 1993. Uh, That was a time that uh, the uh, Cold War uh, had come to an end, and really the Berlin Wall fell in 1989, Soviet Union ceased to exist in 1991, so defense appeared to be entering into a new world, and uh, we were invited by Secretary Aspen to uh, a dinner at the Pentagon. When I say we, it was probably 20 or 25 uh, CEOs of uh, aerospace defense, uh, defense written broadly, uh, companies. Did they tell you why? Secretary Aspen wanted you to come to the Pentagon with your your colleagues from the defense contracting world in person? Uh, we were simply invited to come to dinner uh, in the secretary's dining room next to his office. And uh, needless to say, that's an invitation you don't refuse. So we all appeared. So you, you actually ended up sitting right next to Secretary Aspen. Is that right? During the dinner portion? During the dinner, for whatever reason, I don't know, but I happened to be sitting next to uh, the secretary. And, and of of course, I I wondered why I was there. And so I said to him that it was, uh, these were very hard times and it was nice to get a free meal, but uh, why are we here? What did he say? 
he uh, responded that you'll know in a few minutes and you probably won't like it. Oh, dear. Okay, so I'm sure that that didn't make you feel um, terribly confident about what was going to happen next. But then I understand that dinner wraps up and you go into, what, a conference room um, nearby? And was it uh, was it William Perry who then began speaking? That's accurate. Uh, the sec- we went into a little room next to the dining room next to uh, by the secretary's office. Uh, it really wasn't a conference room. It was more just a little presentation room with a screen. And the 20 or 25 of us sat in chairs there and looked at the screen. Uh, the secretary welcomed us all. And then Deputy Secretary Bill Perry uh, made a presentation. And in that presentation, uh, William Perry provides basically some information about what the Pentagon thinks is going to happen regard, regarding its procurement over the next several years. Like, what, what, was, what did Perry say? Well, it was a, uh, obviously a difficult time for the, the, the Defense Department. Uh, the, uh, as the U.S. has often done uh, at the end of a war, is cut way back in defense. And people spoke at that time of the, uh, the, uh, the defense dividend, the peace dividend that, that was the end of the Cold War and that the country could divert uh, funds to other reasons. Uh, the Defense Department clearly was going to have a major budget cut. And if I take the example of the industry I'm most familiar with, aerospace, uh, at that time there were about 15 companies, and uh, the ideal from a standpoint of national security would be to continue to have 15 very strong uh, companies of various sizes. It would be good for competition, it would be good for the industrial base, the problem was uh, that wasn't a choice, and so I'm in no way critical of what uh, the position that Secretary Perry took. Uh, I think he had bad choices to choose from, and he did the best uh, he could have done under the circumstances. In any event, uh, Secretary Perry uh, made a presentation using a, a graph that was projected on the on the screen. And uh, it was a stunning graph, uh, so much so that the following day I went over to the Pentagon and asked for a copy of it, which I, I still have. And uh, what was stunning about it was uh, that the Defense Department was saying there are way too many companies in the defense industrial base that we can't afford them. And uh, that uh, we couldn't have a bunch of companies with half-full factories and not enough money to invest in research and development huge overhead, uh, high costs, and uh, we need to consolidate the industry. And just to give you an example, uh, the chart had a column on it that showed how many companies in various categories of military equipment, like fighter airplanes, tanks, or what have you, how many companies the Defense Department was going to be able to afford to keep in business. And uh, as examples, uh, there were uh, 16 categories of equipment, and uh, there were uh, uh, three, the government said it could keep three companies uh, in business uh, in uh, one of the categories. In other of the categories, it could afford to keep uh, Let's see, it was six categories that could afford to keep two companies in business. 
And there were seven categories where it could set it, could only keep one one company of business. Mr. Augustine, hang on here for just a second, because you actually have me quite at the edge of my seat here. We have to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to hear more about what later became known as the Last Supper in the world of defense contracting. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're talking about what's known in the world of defense contracting as the Last Supper. It was a dinner meeting at the Pentagon in the fall of 1993 that led to the complete reshaping of the defense sector in the United States. And I'm joined today by Norman Augustine. He's former U.S. Undersecretary for the Army, served in that position from 1975 to 1977, later went on to be chairman and CEO of Martin Marietta, and then... Lockheed Martin. And Mr. Augustine, you were just describing how uh, at this Last Supper, uh, Bill Perry had this chart and it showed various categories of military equipment and spending. You said bombs, tanks, bombers, submarines, tanks, things like that. And then there was one column that showed how many companies were currently providing that equipment. Um, like say, I believe in in the in the early '90s, there were like three main companies that were providing um, equipment for bombers. Let's say, and then Perry had a second column that showed how many the Pentagon felt like they could keep in business or that they would need in the coming years post Cold War. And in some of those columns, there was just the number one. Do I have that right? That's uh, accurate. Uh, needless to say, I was stunned uh, for really two reasons. One, it pointed to how fragile our defense industrial base was going to become. But there was another factor that to me was awfully important. That, that meant that in those areas, there would not be competition. You know, I happen to be a strong believer in competition and the free enterprise system. I think it served our country well. And uh, apparently we were being such a financial position where uh, we weren't going to be able to afford that in in some areas. So then what did Aspen and Perry tell this gathering of CEOs from the defense industry? Like, this is what's happening. The defense budget's going to decline. This is how many companies that we can continue to work with. Did they have any recommendations of what you should do as you filed out of the room? 
They did. Uh, they had made very clear what they could afford and that they weren't going to pay for companies that had one-third full factories and uh, inefficiencies that go with that. And they said that the government was not uh, in the business of uh, redesigning companies or consolidating industries or putting people in or out of business, that that was up to us, uh, the CEOs of the companies that were in the industry at the time. And uh, that uh, was uh, quite an awakening of, to hear it from the Defense Department, how, how small an industry would uh, be afforded. And I should add to that that uh, in serious wartime, uh, the defense industrial base is really the national industrial base. And it, too, in manufacturing was severely declining at the same time. And, mm. In 1980, uh, 18% of the workforce in the nation was in the manufacturing world. By the time of the, uh, uh, shortly after the Last Supper, it was 7%. So the commercial industrial base was declining and the defense industrial base was going to decline. Big worry for uh, any future uh, need for large-scale military equipment. Mm. Now, walking out of the meeting were the various CEOs, and, and, and including you, Mr. Augustine, were you sort of looking at each other being like, hey, good luck to you? Yes, I, I was somewhat surprised by the reaction. Uh, it was kind of, uh, things are going to be very tough for you and your company, but uh, nobody seemed to be absorbing it for their own company. And uh, the next day, uh, I was asked uh, by a reporter uh, what had happened at the dinner. And I said, well, it was the Last Supper. And that sort of stuck. And uh, it was, uh, in many regards, the Last Supper. You're the one who came up with that phrase. When you said it was to that reporter that it was like the Last Supper for uh, the defense base, was that a, just an off-the-cuff phrase? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It just popped uh, to my mind at the time. But... There had been a lot of curiosity, both in industry and in the media that relates to the industry, as to why we were all being invited to dinner at the Pentagon. That had never happened before, to my knowledge. And uh, so when they asked, I, it just occurred to me, well, it was the Last Supper. <laughs> so um, really, the, pe the Pentagon uh, said, this is happening there's going to be a reorganization. You guys take care of it. Now, one thing that could have happened is that companies could have just gone out of business. But that's not what happened. There was this incredible period of consolidation and mergers. So can you tell me a little bit, uh, Norm Augustine, about the roles or the, the role that policies at the Pentagon itself or politics um, played in um, uh advancing the mergers of even the, the company, for example, that you ended up being the CEO of, Lockheed Martin. The, um, the policy of uh, driving companies out of business, uh, I wouldn't even say that was a policy. The policy was to streamline the defense industry so it didn't have a lot of overhead. And uh, also, many of these companies uh, had capabilities that the government wanted to maintain. The, uh, but in the next three years, we saw our industry lose 40% of its employees. This is the aerospace industry. And uh, nearly 70% of the companies were basically absorbed and other companies are combined together to be more efficient. And it saved the government a great deal of money. Uh, the problem was it reduced the size of the industrial base should we need one in the future. And I, I have to say very quickly here that... Uh, 
this has not been uncommon. Uh, I mentioned that we talked about uh, the peace dividend at the end of the Cold War uh, during World War II in Great Britain. Uh, the uh, comment was made that uh, we'll have peace in our time. And you go back to uh, at the end of World War One, Churchill made a, what I thought was a remar- more remarkable statement right at the end of the war. Uh, he said that uh, war is unthinkable in this modern world that we live in. Uh, we have the League of Nations. We have travel of people all around the world getting to know each other. Uh, businesses work in all countries together. And uh, it's just un- unthinkable that we could have a major war. Mm. And then he said, would be a pity if we were wrong. <laughs> and that's the tough part of the issue. Uh, when you don't need defense in the short term, uh, it's very tempting and probably appropriate in some cases to uh, cut back. Uh, the trick is not to cut back so far. And I, today, at that time, and uh, last supper, uh, China wasn't even an issue. Uh, I was among the first Americans to ever travel in China. And uh, huge crowds would follow me just because they were curious uh, the I saw maybe a half a dozen bicycles. That was 1978. Excuse me, half a dozen automobiles. Everybody had bicycles. And one of the questions I often got from people in China, they had apparently heard that Westerners were supposed to be wealthy. People in China would ask me, uh, how many bicycles do you own? That was a measure of wealth. And so China wasn't even on the cards at that time or in the cards. Uh, uh, Russia at the time, or even today, uh, Russia is a country with a population of Mexico, uh, a, a GDP of Spain, and uh, 1,650 deliverable nuclear warheads. And I, I think it was John McCain that said uh, Russia is a filling station with nuclear warheads. Hmm. And uh, we're seeing what that means in today's yeah. world when one thinks about places like uh, Ukraine, Taiwan, and so on. Well, so um, the sort of change in, co- in global context is important to keep in mind as we talk about sort of where the world is now. Um, but I want to just refocus for a moment on the, the creation of Lockheed Martin uh, as a company, Mr. Augustine, because... You know, as you know well, the world of M&A is littered with uh, a lot of mergers that uh, didn't quite go as planned and that they didn't accomplish what was uh, what was hoped for in bringing companies together. But when Lockheed Martin was formed, um, I think something like, what, 15, 16 or 17 um, groups, in a sense, were, were brought into one company. Did the Pentagon and particularly the, the, the Justice Department, did they do anything to actually sort of smooth the way for that merger to succeed? Well, you, you make an interesting point, and uh, that is that uh, the history of mergers and acquisitions in the United States is that about 80 percent failed to accomplish the objective they set out to, object, to accomplish. And uh, those aren't just in the defense world. Those are companies overall. And so to go into a strategy of mergers and acquisitions was obviously high risk. And uh, also to build a bigger company uh, in a time when the market was collapsing uh, was also a risk. There were good reasons to take that risk, at least in my view and our board's view and many other boards. And so we set out to put together uh, pieces of companies or all of companies. And uh, we 
put together, as you said, about 17 organizations in the next couple of years and uh, became much more efficient and were able to provide a great deal of savings to the government from what they were purchasing from us. Uh, I've said at the time, and I say it again, that uh, I would a lot rather have 17 healthy companies uh, in the industry rather than 17 weak companies. But the 17 healthy companies wasn't on the uh, agenda. Mm. And so the question was, you like 17 weak companies or three or four strong ones, or even as it turned out, one or two? Uh, that was the choice. And uh, the uh, antitrust world at, at that point in time uh, was very supportive of the companies going together uh, with a, a great deal of encouragement yeah, on the yeah. part of the Defense Department. At that point in time, because I understand that you, for example, a little later on, um, Lockheed Martin wanted to, I think, uh, acquire General Electric Aerospace. Um, but uh, there were parts of the, the government that were maybe looking on that not so kindly. And you called up, but you called Bill, Bill Perry up and said, hey, we're trying to do this merger and uh, uh, your colleagues over at DOJ are, aren't really falling in line. <laughs> Help us out here. Yes, uh, the first uh, merger we got involved in was uh, with General Electric Aerospace uh, Company, or division, I guess. And uh, the antitrust folks at that time were uh, making it very hard to put uh, the two organizations together. That was the the beginning, as I said. And uh, so I actually went to Pentagon visit with Secretary Perry and said that if you really want the, the industry to consolidate, you better tell your friends in the government to get with the program. <laughs> and they did <laughs> thereafter. So so, so, Bill Perry's role here is quite uh, important because by 1997, um, things started changing, right, in the Pentagon. Um, the Department of Defense that was once encouraging after the Last Supper, all this big con- consolidation uh, in the defense sector, it was starting to look a lot different. The hardest farewell to say is to the troops who have served me and whom I have served. Words cannot adequately describe my pride in you. Now, that is William Perry in January of 1997 on his way out as Secretary of Defense. Now, Recall, he was the guy back in 1993 who said, uh, you know, we expect defense companies may go out of business and we will stand by and watch it happen. Well, in his place came Secretary William Cohen. And during Cohen's confirmation hearings, he, in fact, raised some concerns about the dwindling amount of competition in the defense sector because the mergers were continuing apace. Just one month earlier, two companies announced one of the biggest mergers yet. Good morning. I'm Phil Condit. In a few minutes, Harry Stonecipher and I will hold a news conference to announce publicly that we are now operating as a single company. This is truly a historic moment. And it's hard not to say, wow. So that was an internal company video from aviation giant Boeing. Phil Condit was its CEO, and in December of 96, Condit announced Boeing's $14 billion acquisition of McDonnell Douglas, then led by Harry Stonecipher. 
Well, soon after that merger came Raytheon and its purchase of the defense holdings of Texas Instruments and Hughes Electronics for a combined $12.5 billion. None of those mergers faced, you know, a ton of regulatory opposition. The Justice Department did require Raytheon divest itself of a TI business unit that produced some components for radar systems. But the overall merger was allowed to go through in July of 1997. But here's the thing. In July of 97, the Justice Department also signaled a notable change in its tune about defense sector consolidation. Joel Klein was the newly named assistant attorney general in the DOJ's antitrust division. And on July 2nd, 1997, he said, while industry downsizing can be desirable or even necessary, we will do what it takes to preserve effective competition. So, Mr. Augustine, what did you make of these personnel and political changes going on at that time? As I said, I'm a strong believer in the free enterprise system and competition. I say that as an American and as also a person in business. Uh, I'd rather compete with strong companies than weak companies that do desperate things. And so uh, I, I find no fault with what Secretary Perry did under the circumstances that uh, he lived, uh, the, the bounce on what he could do. I, I, I will say that uh, I, I've worked 10 years for the government in six different jobs, and uh, I get it. Uh, our government uh, makes the rules, it interprets the rules, and enforces the rules, and industry follows the rules, and that's the way it ought to be. Uh, my complaint about the way that uh, the switch in policies handled is that nobody told the industry that, that was a, there was a new policy. What happened was a new person came into justice and a new person into defense, and they adopted policies that uh, they thought were appropriate to the new times, and uh, I, I don't find the fault with that. Mm. But I wish they had told the industry that uh, there's a new policy now. It was a little like uh, you, if you put up a sign that says speed limit 35 miles per hour, and most of us in the industry will try to go no less, no more than 35 miles an hour. But when you put up a sign that says no speeding uh, subject to arrest, uh, that uh, isn't very helpful. We have about uh, 30 seconds before we have to take our next break, Mr. Augustine. I, but I want to quickly ask you, Joel Klein made that announcement about, you know, maybe not being so keen on... Uh, mergers on July 2nd of 1997. The next day, on July 3rd, Lockheed Martin announced its plans to acquire Northrop Grumman for $11 billion. So just begin to give me an answer here. What made you continue to pursue that deal? The, uh, the, the Boeing had just bought McDonnell Douglas. The Europeans had objected to that sum. The United States strongly backed the, the deal. And so on the heels of that, it seemed to us, uh, having not been clearly told anything else, that uh, combining uh, North of Grumman and Lockheed Martin uh, made a great deal of sense and uh, would save the government uh, literally billions of dollars a year. And that's been audited. Uh, it, uh, the, the trouble with it, of course, is it reduces the size of the number of companies in the defense industrial base which is something that uh, we would all, I think, have preferred not happen yeah. in the, uh, for the longer term. Well, Norman Augustine, hang on here for just a second because there is a story about what happened with that uh, Lockheed Martin Northrop Grumman proposed merger. I want to hear it from you when we come back. This is On Point. 
did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're talking about what's known in the world of defense contracting as the Last Supper. It's a series of events that led to the rapid consolidation of the defense sector after 1993, roughly between 1993 and uh, 1998. And I'm joined here by Norman Augustine. He's the former chairman and CEO of Lockheed Martin. Now, before the break, we were talking about how uh, on July 3rd, Lockheed Martin announced its plans to acquire Northrop Grumman for $11 billion. That's That's July 3rd, 1997. Well, come March 23rd, 1998, Attorney General Janet Reno announced this. In a fast-moving global economy, our nation cannot afford anything less than full-blooded competition. That is why we asked the federal court in Washington, D.C. today to prevent the merger of the Lockheed Martin Corporation and the Northrop Grumman Corporation two of the largest suppliers of defense systems to the United States military. So the government was going to block the merger, one of uh, the largest mergers ever challenged by the Department of Justice. Mr. Augustine, that was March 23rd. You, in fact, knew that the government wasn't going to support the the merger uh, a couple of weeks before that. How did you find out? The uh, meeting was called in the Pentagon one Friday afternoon, I think at 5 o'clock after the markets closed. And... uh, the uh, representatives of both Northrop Grumman and Lockheed Martin were invited. And uh, the uh, night before that, uh, we had met with all our lawyers, the com- both companies' lawyers, large number. And uh, I had asked them rather specifically, uh, what's the worst thing that could happen to us? And they had been talking with the government daily for almost a year. And the comment was that we might be required to sell certain pieces of companies that uh, – did pose antitrust problems. We were certainly prepared to sell those parts. It seemed appropriate to us to do that. Uh, when we went into the meeting, uh, an individual from the Justice Department stood up and said they were going to stop the transaction. And uh, uh, I think all of us from both companies were stunned. Uh, the CEO of Northrop Grumman said that uh, he didn't uh, want to need to sell his company, but he had a problem, and that was that uh, they had not even bid on the most recent fighter plane because they didn't feel they had a chance of winning. Uh, he said, uh, the next fighter plane is going to come up 20 years from now, the next opportunity at best. And so uh, his company just didn't feel it could sit around uh, under the defense budgets that had been going on until then and uh, and wait. And so that was the reason they were selling their company. Hmm. Okay. So the government stepped in and did not uh, support or allow the Lockheed Martin Northrop Grumman um, 
merger. Uh, But nevertheless, the effects of the Last Supper were lasting, right? Because there had been uh, a real complete transformation of the defense sector. I mean, in fact, a Department of Defense report last year found that right now the number of prime contractors in the United States has dropped by 90 percent, down from 51 in the 90s to just five today. Now, those companies are often referred to as the big five. Lockheed Martin, that Norman Augustine used to uh, be the head of, Raytheon, General Dynamics, Boeing, and Northrop Grumman. So, Mr. Augustine, just stick with me for a little bit because I want to sort of take listeners to where we are now. Because in 2021, the General Accounting Office issued a report that continued its longstanding analysis that DOD's procurement processes are vulnerable to waste, fraud, and abuse. And that same year, retired Colonel Larry Wilkerson joined us on this show and honed in on one aspect of the GAO's report. They look at a fiscal year 2020, $422 billion going to contractors. Yes, you heard that right. That's more than half. That's about 60% of the annual money DOD gets going to contractors. So to repeat, 60% of the Defense Department budget is paid out to contractors. And this has been the norm for several years, because after 9-11, defense spending started rocketing up. Now, so remember, at the top of the show, when we talked about the fact that more than half of the federal government spending goes to the Defense Department, well, if 60% of that goes to contractors, that means almost a third, 30% of federal dollars budgeted in this country ends up in the coffers of defense contractors who are led by just five companies. Well, Taylor Giorno is the money and politics reporter at Open Secrets, a group that tracks money in politics. And she found that the big five companies wield huge influence in Washington, thanks to lobbying. From the beginning of the 2002 election cycle to the end of the 2022 election cycle that we just had, the defense sector steered $381 million into federal political contributions alone. But it spent $3.6 billion on federal lobbying. And... During that 20-year span, the defense sector hired over 2,700 lobbyists who have worked in the same government that regulates and decides funding for the industry. And where are those political contributions going? The vast majority of these campaign contributions go towards members of the House and Senate Armed Services and Appropriations Committees, a.k.a. the people that are making the decisions about which contracts will be going to the Department of, or how much money will go to the Department of Defense, which will then go towards the individual contractors. Now, during the 2020 election cycle, Giorno says that the top recipients of defense sector dollars were the new chair of the House Armed Services Committee, Republican Mike Rogers, and House Defense Appropriations Subcommittee Chair, Republican Ken Calvert. But the industry has bipartisan giving. So former House Armed Services Committee Chair and current ranking member, Adam Smith, a Democrat from California, and the Defense Appropriations Subcommittee ranking member Betty McCollum, a Democrat of Minnesota, are also top recipients. So Giorno says we are caught in a textbook self-sustaining cycle of lobby, spend, lobby. The defense sector pours money to lobby Congress. And in return, both Democrats and Republicans, plus up, to paraphrase Senator Mitch McConnell, the defense budget, and then the DOD pours that money back into the defense sector. From 2016 to 2021, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Boeing, Northrop Grumman, and General Dynamics, which are typically referred to as the Big Five, raked in more than $765 billion from the federal government. 
including about $705 billion from the Department of Defense. And um, to put that number into context, um, only Pfizer breached the top five DOD contractor rankings during 2021 amid the coronavirus vaccine rollout. These five contractors received more money from the Defense Department and the federal government than any other government contractor since 2016. Well, last year, the Defense Department itself, itself said enough is enough. In February 2022, the Pentagon released a report and in it declared DOD is increasingly reliant on a small number of contractors for critical defense capabilities. For example, today, 90 percent of missiles come from just three sources. And the report goes on to say, quote, having a small number of sources for defense needs poses significant national security risks. Promoting competition to the maximum extent possible is a top priority for the department, end quote. Well, after that report was published, it's called The State of Competition Within the Defense Industrial Base, Representative John Garamendi co-signed a letter to Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin urging him to scrutinize defense industry mergers. And the representative joins us now. I understand he's on his way to a vote on the House floor and maybe joining us via cell phone. So, Representative uh, Garamendi, can you hear me? Uh, yes, I can. And I am on the House floor. I'm going to step off and uh, continue the conversation. Just casting the vote. Um, yes. Uh, well, so first of all, I appreciate you taking a, a second of time out uh, from uh, doing your civic your duty here. But tell me a little bit more about why you decided to write that letter to Secretary Austin. What are your concerns about the consolidation in the defense industry? Well, your throw is laying it out precisely the way that we are concerned about it. There are there is no competition on some of the most expensive uh, defense systems that are out there. Uh, for example, the uh, the replacement of the Minuteman missile, which will probably be somewhere over the next decade and a half, <clears throat> somewhere over $150 billion will be spent replacing the Minuteman missiles, which are in the silos in the uh, upper Midwest. Uh, that is a pile of money, uh, a single-source contract, uh, presumably, uh, well, there's no bidding at all, no competition. That's just one example. Uh, the aircraft carriers, uh, again, they're probably somewhere uh, 12 to $15 billion, depending on uh, there's only one company that produces them. Uh, the, uh, the new Columbia-class uh, submarines, one company that produces them. There's no competition in the major defense uh, procurement programs. Uh, the other thing that really concerns me, I've been the chairman of the Readiness Committee, which is responsible once all of that equipment is purchased, the Readiness Committee is responsible for seeing that it's maintained, available for use, ready to be used, uh, and the money necessary to do that is constantly being taken to buy new, bright, shiny pieces of equipment. At the same time, we don't have the money to maintain what we already have. Mm -hmm. The F-35, yet another example, um, Mr. Augustine was speaking to the, the fighter jet issue. That became the F-35. Um, and so my colleagues want to buy more F-35s. That makes the uh, the company very happy. But there's no money to maintain them. Yeah. And so you know, half of them can't fly. So this is an ongoing issue. And so we wrote the letter because we need competition. We have to have multiple suppliers uh, even in the uh, the big things, but even in the small things. Right. So, so Representative, that report that I quoted last year from the Pentagon, the state of competition within the defense industrial base, it actually had recommend recommendations for the DOD to enact itself. 
One of them was to more carefully scrutinize uh, defense sector mergers and to partner more closely with the Department of Justice in, um, you know, in those in in regulating those mergers. Has that happened? Well, no, it has not. Uh, There may be one or two folks somewhere over at the uh, Pentagon that are that are talking to the Justice Department. But you have very carefully and very blatantly put out the the fact of the matter is there's an enormous amount of money swirling around uh, the political sector. Uh, And that that money talks. And uh, the, the revolving door is real. Uh, you get a, a fellow that has a couple of stars or a colonel that's uh, deep into the procurement program. Suddenly he's retired and he's overworking for one or another of these big five. Uh, and it goes round and round. The result of it is the systems are extraordinarily expensive and they are very, very long in, uh, in coming into reality. And the small companies that are absolutely necessary to produce uh, many of the parts, they don't exist. Hmm. Well, Representative, I hear uh, that perhaps you are maybe getting called back to the floor here in just a second. So I want to thank you very much uh, for taking uh, time away from from voting. That's Representative John Garamendi, Democratic Representative for California's 8th Congressional District. Thank you so much. Well, Mr. Augustine, you are the one here in this conversation who has the deep experience running one of these you know, major defense contractors. When the Defense Department says one thing it needs to do is to lower the barriers of entry into the defense sector, partner more with small businesses, I, I mean, given the complexity of the kinds of projects that uh, the companies are building, is that realistic? Can small businesses... G- get into uh, the defense sector? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Look at what's happened in the space world where NASA was the predominant uh, player throughout today. There are a number of small companies, startups, that play major roles. But I have to say that I disagree with much of what I've heard in the last five minutes. Uh, First of all, I guess I need to say that I've been out of the defense world for 20, I retired, what, 26 years ago. And I've been working in other worlds totally different from defense uh, since then. But uh, the numbers that were quoted, uh, for example, the fraction of the defense budget uh, that uh, went to uh, procurement uh, being so dominant, uh, at least when I was there, by far the dominant element was personnel costs. Uh, the comment that uh, the federal government, uh, the majority is, or uh, near the majority, is uh, going to defense, uh, at least when I was there. Well, as a matter of fact, more recently, even, it was like at one sixth. And uh, when I go back, uh, the government in 1993, as we've talked about, uh, made a decision that we had too many companies in the defense world, which I happen to not disagree with what they did under the circumstances. But uh, then we, uh, 30 years later, all of a sudden say, oh, my goodness, we don't have as many companies as we need in the defense world. And uh, I think the big worry that I have is so much of the equipment our military has today is so old technically. Uh, for example, the Air Force's uh, largest number of fighters by far uh, were developed 51 years ago, when it entered engineering development 51 years ago. The Army's tank, uh, main tank, went into development 50 years ago. Uh, 
And you can go down the list. The strategic bomber, the main strategic bomber we have, went into development 75 years ago. Think how much the technology has changed. And while those systems have been upgraded, as they should have been, it's it's just very hard to uh, turn a, a 1975 uh, Buick into a modern car. And uh, I, I just think that... Uh, what we need to do is look at the problems we face today, which I think are immense, particularly with the evolution of China and the aggressiveness of Russia. And uh, we may have to restructure the industry. I, I really don't know, but uh, I, I think it's just wrong to point to the industry as uh, uh, behaving in the fashion that was just portrayed. Mm. Well, so just to, to clarify the facts that I presented a little bit early, earlier, the ones that you, you uh, take issue with, I mean, in the December 2022 omnibus spending bill, the $1.7 trillion bill, that's the one I was referring to, that was signed by uh, President Biden, $858 billion of that is for Pentagon spending. Um, so that is slightly more than half. That number stands. Now, the uh, other reference that I made was to a GAO report from 2001 uh, that showed that uh, roughly 60% of Pentagon spending uh, these days is going to defense contractors. So you know, the 2021, 22, 23 now, uh, quite a different world from uh, the early 90s. But I can't tell you how much I appreciate you joining us today to provide us your insight and your expertise on the consolidation of the defense sector. Norman Augustine, former chairman and CEO of Lockheed Martin. Mr. Augustine, thank you so much. You bet. Thank you. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. <laughs>